Welcome to the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute Research and Practice Podcast. Today, we have the opportunity to talk with Tony De La Rosa about his book, Teaching the Invisible Race. Soon-to-be Dr. De La Rosa is currently a doctoral student at my alma mater, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and embarking on a prolific book tour across the country. Let's listen in. Welcome and thank you so much for coming on to Anti-Racist Leadership Institute podcast. I cannot believe I have the opportunity to talk with Tony De La Rosa, soon to be Dr. De La Rosa. I have his book. It's 45 yeah. seconds left, 45 minutes left. Yes. Right? I'm, the, I'm tripping, right? I haven't finished it before, but I'm so I've been reading this book for for actually weeks because I've been going through it every day, every day. And and sort of not reading, but have it read to me. Chap- I have to read chapters at that time because there's so much. So thank you for coming on for this conversation. And I'd like you to give you an opportunity for those who don't know you yet. Who are you? And tell us a little bit about you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm so excited. You can tell by my energy. It's my Filipino energy. So yes, I'm a Filipino-American racial justice educator, researcher around ethnic studies policy and how it translates into practice. That's why I came to UW-Madison. And a father of one and soon to be two children son of Pampangan and Filipino Cavite, Caviteño immigrants, and I would say a husband right now. Wonderful. Yes. All of that wrapped up in an incredible sense of someone who is blowing up uh, in terms of changing the paradigm on Asian American education, or education about Asian America's political history. Yep. So what brought you, what brought you to this book? Why, why did you decide to do this? Why yeah, did you decide to write this big... book? This big project, literally, and when we think about Hugsy or Harvard GSC, I took the course from Dr. Christina Villarreal, who was my ethnic studies professor at the time. And at that time, I was teaching ethnic studies. I was was teaching ethnic studies through spoken word poetry with my youth in Indianapolis, in Boston. And I was weaving in poets from all cultures and definitely from Filipino and Asian American at large. What I learned was that Everywhere I went from state to state, it was bereft, right? We did not see or hear when I asked foundational questions around who are Asian American leaders. I can quiz you right now, Dr. Benson. <laughs> Trace, I can quiz you right now. And then it might, in, it might implicate you. You know, like, I don't want you to feel that. That's not the spot in the hot seat. But it's just it implicates the entire system at large and who has been invisibilized within the U.S. education system, Right. For reasons, right? For for reasons, right? So that's why I wrote this book. I wanted to combat teaching the invisible race. The Filipinos within Asian America is invisible within the invisible. And that concept is a through line throughout the book as well. So that is a big reason why I wrote this, because I want the book that I never had as a teacher, right? As a student, I want the students to know that their teachers are getting this book. So they know, even if it's the one kid in the classroom who's Asian American, they know that their teacher got their back. They know how to approach them with nuance, with care, and with love. So that's partially why I wrote that book. And I think it's awesome, right? You wrote it for a book that you would have wanted when you were a teacher, the curriculum you wanted when you were a kid. The passion comes through in the writing. And it's not just good for Asian Americans. It's good for every student, right? Because the questions you ask, I'm like, these are like mad rhetorical. Like, because I, the the question on the, I'm just silent. I actually do not know. Any sort of, I'll talk with my wife. My wife's a history professor. And Asian leaders in America, we're like, ha, huh, that is a very good question. So 
what is the importance of this intervention right now at this time in 2024? I think it's tremendously important, but I want to hear it from you. You make a very important intervention. Yes, it is an intervention. It was a response to 2020 and way before, but like 2020 was the mark of like George Floyd, the murder of him, and at the simultaneously the rise of anti-Asian hate and racism. Like, let's call it what it is. Let's call it what it is. And a lot of orgs were like tracking hate crimes, which eventually came up to in 2022, according to the Stop Asian or Hate Report Cards, an organization that collects this data, around 11,000 reports. And that's the that's only the reported. Asian American hate crimes. So what's the underreported? And then like, that's 2022. What's happening now? I just saw a report recently that said, I think by Axios that said that stop, like Asian, Asian hate crimes are being underreported now or like receiving less visibility right now. As you think about the neoliberal state of mind where people jump from one issue to the next because media dictates what our craving should be, what our libido for activism should be, right? So that's where it started and why I wrote and where, where it comes from and where it situates. Right. And I'm glad that you brought up George Floyd because this sort of frames my next question, right? Because as an African-American, folks were, especially my, my white, I wouldn't say friends, but I would say more acquaintances, were asking more questions around like, oh my gosh, you know, what is this recent rise in violence around to, uh, you know, for black males in our judicial system, like what is this police violence? And in my mind, like this is age old. This ain't new, right? Just because this white America learns this is new, this ain't new. And so when you're talking about, you know, during the time in you know COVID and 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 after about the rise in anti Asian sentiment, this is not new. And so for folks who don't understand the long history in the U.S. of these type of sentiments, can you like school us a little bit on? This is new. This is placed in our history in a very profound way. Yeah, this an American tradition. This is presidential. You know, let me let me go over into some of these like policies from the president's side. You know what I'm saying? Like President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Executive Order 9066, the internment or incarceration of Japanese American, right? President Lyndon B. Johnson, Hart Seller Act of 1965, shifting an immigrant quota system to an merit-based system. That's like leaning into like model minority. Like I like notions, right? And then President Donald Trump, Executive Order thirteen seven six nine in twenty seventeen, also known as the Muslim ban. So this has been an ongoing thing, whether it's from a a, a a policy and that flows into ideologies and habits and ways of being on the ground, right? And then I think people just forget of the policy and that policies are being created to this day to disenfranchise, to oppress Asian Americans, to put them to the fringes, or, or to weaponize them as tools of anti-Blackness, right, to further a conservative right agenda. So like, we have always been used, and that's to me a criticality of this book, is like we're objectified, right? We're used as something. And like part of this book also is not just for non-Asians. I do want Asians to pick up this book because I want them to find agency. They're, they have it, but I want them to find a sense of self-agency and to be like, yo, ooh, I've been objectified. Here's when and how do I take that agency back? Awesome. Yeah. And I, and I, this concept of wedging that you talk about, and it's in a, an offshoot and weaponization of white supremacy, that we're going to Absolutely. gaslight people of color to say these Asian Americans are these model minorities and you all need to be like them. And we're going to 
even though there are still very real receivers of ongoing racism in our society. And we want to think about how to interject, because your, your book is basically a teacher's manual of how to embed this curriculum within your classroom. The question is, where does it fit and how does it fit? And I, and I say that because if I'm thinking back to my experience in elementary school, and yes, I would have, as a black, per black boy, right, I think I learned about slavery like the third grade. I'm like, oh, that's harsh. So I remember learning about slavery. I remember learning about Native American genocide. They don't call it that. And they also we, I remember learning about the Holocaust. But all of this history with Asian Americans is completely absent. Where does it go? Yeah. So for me personally, like from a personal level, I, when I re recollect my information, I always go back and like, where does this live in the body? Where do I remember it? And ever another reason why I wrote the book was because I remember it as in passivity in, re in relation to war. And that, what does that do to you? I say that in the book, what does that do to you if all you can remember is yourself in a passive voice or in relation to war? You're gonna be situated in that narrative and boxed in as either little brown brother, <laughs> that you're gonna help us win the war or we're gonna conquer you. So you're, you, you fit into a um, colonial project right? and you see yourself that's why some, some homies of mine about the colonial mentality. So where it fits into education, I want it to be in history courses. Like my target audience was teachers for sure. Upper elementary, because I used to teach upper elementary all the way up to first year, ninth grade, ELA, humanities and social studies. So those, it's a broad range. When I was a teacher coach, I can see history teachers use this book to make sure their content is correct because I remember coaching teachers who would teach about white man's burden, for example, and then point, use imagery. And I love using art because I'm an artist myself, an arts educator, and use art, political cartoons, and see the wrong Asian. Or like, that's wrong. We're not, <laughs> we're all the same. They'll say, or they'll just say, they'll, they'll minimize it or homogenize and say, oh, that was a native indigenous person. Oh, oh, okay. Like, who was it? It was a Filipino. Oh, yes. That's where I interject, right? And that's another reason why I, I wrote this book because I was like, oh my God, these teachers, these teachers are not just glazing over these things that are so critical for us and to build like cross-racial solidarity with Asians, right? Because that's essentially a, another core reason for this book is like, I wanted, there's my own theory in this book is to create cross-racial solidarity with Asians after they read this book. That's an outcome. So social studies teachers, ELA and literature teachers can embed it. Like history is like objectively, you can put it in your history when you're teaching about those wars, because war is a huge facet. Talking about the Cold War, that's where model minority concepts came out of. And then in terms of literature and history, oh my, literature and ELA, so much, so much curriculum being written today about from Asian American writers, poets, nonfiction, fiction, that I want people to think about that they can, Lao authors, right? Can anyone name a Lao author? You talked about your family being part Lao. They don't know about the the secret war, right? If you don't know about the secret war and how we were used to Hmong and Lao folks to fight each other in Vietnamese folks, that triangulation and everyone else just watching and funding it, you don't really understand what Southeast Asians are going through, what not having a home to return back to means. Refugee is a means. You don't get to understand that. So when you are able to embed that, just simple narratives, different ethnicities other than East Asian. There's mostly East Asian out there, American born Chinese. We're still fighting up, like an upward battle because that didn't even get on Disney return for a second season. You know what I'm saying? So 
again, there's so much to be talked about and woven into when we think about those core subjects. And I haven't even touched the surface with math yet either or STEM. That's like my second book, right? But for now, we're going to focus on the humanities. Awesome. Because it is absent from, it's, it's not accidentally absent. You know, someone made this curriculum. Someone decided what was important. Someone decided who was important and who to center and who to leave out. So for those who are listening to this podcast, school leaders and even teachers and anyone in education, that there is room because it's been purposefully left out. And you, you mentioned that, yes, part of my family, my son, I'm African-American, his mother is Lao. And when we were together, I was in close proximity to Lao culture, which I had previously not even known what a Southeast Asian person was. I grew up in Wisconsin. And so there aren't a lot of right. Asians where I was at. And of course, I was like everyone else. I'm thinking Chinese, Japanese, Korean, because that's all I knew. But even with proximity, I started to know more. And what we often hear, because this is something that you, you get to in your book about this colonial mentality, is that in my work, when I am coaching folks from either someone of color who's not, doesn't have a, a deep depth of knowledge around anti-racism or someone white, they'll immediately bring up, well, you know, I, my best friend is black, or I have a partner that's black, or I have a child that's black as a marker that I'm somehow more proximate to anti-racism. And I know from my experience, even though my son is Lao, his mother is Lao, we are a very close blended family with my current wife. It still, it does not even scratch the surface around what I really need to know about Asian Americans. And so how does that fit into your idea that even in spaces without Asian Americans, this curriculum is necessary? Oh my goodness, yes. How are you gonna learn about this? How are we gonna learn and show up in cross-racial justice with Asian America if you are not carving out space to learn about it? One, like finding out in yourself that you don't know it, one. And then two, finding out the resource to get it. Like how are you gonna do that if we don't bring it to districts states and areas that are not aggregate Asian American. That's like part of the purpose of my book because I grew up in the Midwest. Like I grew up in, well, first of all, I grew up in San Diego, California, you know, my West Coast flavor, you can still feel it and taste it and understand it, but I brought it to the Midwest. Like when, when I was 11, 12, I became a brown boy in a sea of white. So I was that, I was the curriculum, fam. Like I was the curriculum. That's what Emily Stiles says, like half of the kids go, when you, when you enter a classroom, half of the curriculum is your students. So that's kind of like the reframing in this book too. It's like, oh yes. And if half of the curriculum, if all the curriculum is white or black or not Asian, then how are you going to embed it? There's that, that call to action. So yeah, I mean, it needs, it like, it's like, I got this same content and same res like response from a colleague of mine in Indiana, they're like, you need to target this book to like districts that serve Asians. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's pause. Let's, let's see. Let's, let's examine what you're saying. You're saying that this is only important for districts that are serving Asian American. Yes. From a racial capitalism view, it aligns because there's Asian Americans there for representation, ethno-racial matching. I get what you're doing there. You want to do affirmations from a like, culturally relevant teaching perspective. However, we're filling up a colonial gap of omission. Right. This is if I were to rewrote this book, it would be teaching the omitted race because you said, Tracy, like we are actively omitted, not invisibilized. Invisibilized, invisibilized is too passive for me. It's still kind of like an outcome of active omission. So in the areas like in Wisconsin, let me just talk about Wisconsin, Ripon, Wisconsin. <laughs> I was 
I was performing in Ripon, Wisconsin. This is the founding party of the Republican Party, okay? Uh-huh. And let me tell you, it's a small liberal arts college of 700 folks, well-meaning white folks, and they needed this so much. They're like, oh my goodness. If it wasn't for you coming to my campus today, I would never, ever have learned about this. Through my whole experience, not through my K-12 and not through my college experience, which means at large, and if that's a big chunk of America, let's scale it, right? Like, then they, that shows that the rest of America, a huge chunk of America, is never going to encounter Asian American racial literacy or be literate in our social political consciousness work. So that's why it's so important right now. And that's why a lot of people are fighting for representation. I know that's just a surface, but that's why with the starting point, because one, you just don't even know where to start. You just don't even know how to name who we are. And then once you're able to go in there, the next big issue is sustaining the work. And that's why I like cultural responsive sustaining pedagogies. I love that aspect and that alteration of the theory, because we, we definitely want to emphasize the sustaining portion of the work, because again, it combats the, the neoliberal like one-off, one-off time. I'm going to get this book, this training, this one-day workshop, and we're good to go. No, even for me as an anti-racist, ab aspiring abolitionist educator, I need to go back and re-reference these things because I'm not always surrounded by Black folks. I'm not always surrounded by Indigenous folks, right? So I'm constantly putting in my schedule a time and a place to learn about it, relearn about it, go back to my notes because by capacity, we can't hold it all up in our heads. So just to, just to, just to like carve out and like really like circle back, it really, we really need this because if it's not going to be present, if it's not near you, you're not going to get it. That's just a clear response to your answer. Right. Excellent. And I love that. And these concepts right now, I, I've just submitted a paper on, on um, a, a series of papers on education leadership constructed developmental and anti-racism about how we, uh, as leaders of different racial backgrounds, interact with leadership in schools based on our race and how schools interact with us. A lot of the concepts you talk about there is very, is a sort of a one-to-one -one with the what um, I've been studying. I'm nowhere near an expert, but I believed in my, my research around a, a number of different interviews with people from different racial backgrounds. And one of the central concepts, and I want, and I want to talk to you about another two concepts that you're going to choose because there's so much here that you want folks to sort of like, to like wet their appetite around, okay, if you don't understand this concept, this is what it is, come read the book. And when you talk about the personal is the political, and I love it that you lead with story. Personal is the political, the personal is the political. And that concept is so powerful, especially when it comes to students' lived experience. Can you explain this concept and why you chose to mobilize it throughout the book? Yo, so personal is political. I was, when I think about the cadence, and I was like, what do I want to put out in the world right now? You know, what, I had to just really zoom out. I was like, what am I reading? What am I seeing? What am I seeing? All the PD books that I got, because this is technically a PD book, right? For schools and some corporate places have adopted it as well. And I'm like, yes, you too, you know? It really came down to emotion and spiritual, the different types of intelligences that we, I want people to leave, to engage and tap into. Because right now, and I think we both can agree, Tracy, is that, there's just an over inundated amount of like just intelligence as like raw and just intelligence IQ and a lack of 
affirmation of EQ. We see this in schools, and this is how we recruit when it comes to teachers in urban school districts. We'll have black and brown students who have massive, powerful EQs, IQs as well. But we recruit teachers with the IQ, but not the heart for the work, heart for the kids, heart tapped in and ready to handle and work with students who have a high and strong EQ. What does that mean? There's a disequilibrium of emotional intelligence in the classroom. And then from a leadership standpoint, EQ can tell me, wow, that's not the leader I want to follow, right? I lead, I want to, I want to listen and learn from someone who's passionate, right? So personal is political. There's the EQ, right? I will start with poetry because I'm a poet first and foremost too. Like when I was an undergrad, I'm going to date myself, but I was listening to Saul Williams, Def Jam Poetry. And I was like, that was my thing. Like, I was like, this is my political education because I'm not getting it in the classroom and I need to do it for myself. And then I need to do this in this book, because if I don't do this in the book, you're only going to get 50% of the other half that is artistic Tony, that is emotional and spiritual Tony, you're not going to get unless we transfer this in the book. That is awesome. And one of Tema Okun's aspects of white supremacy culture is like the worship of the written word. And you're like, the written word doesn't have to just be IQ. It needs to be emotional intelligence as well, Absolutely. right? Because that's where education lies, right? You have to get students to buy into the quality of education and see themselves in the curriculum to really believe that they need to learn things of quality and it reflects themselves, right? And teachers, 100%. as you say, can have the greatest IQ, you know, the greatest depth of knowledge, greatest teaching strategies. But if you don't have the emotional intelligence to understand you need to connect with kids in profound ways, it limits your ability to be, to be effective. Exactly. And this means kids it's from effective. a number yeah. of different backgrounds. 100%. Awesome. So I, I, I want to know like two, two concepts. And I know the concepts, so if you don't have them, I can, I can, but the one, the personal political is one I wanted to bring out. And then I'll yeah. save mine to the end if we have time. But for folks who... I haven't, I haven't purchased this book yet. I want everyone to purchase this book because it's been such an amazing masterclass of, it's called Teaching the Invisible Race by Tony De La Rosa. It's available everywhere. You can just type in his name. It comes up. And hopefully you'll be able to find, you, you found his podcast because Googled it and then go on and get the book, right? Listen to him, get the book. It will be a masterclass in, age, in Asian American social political history. And also a roadmap on how to incorporate this type of curriculum into your classroom and into your schools. And so if you have to think about, we'll take it one at a time. So I want to know about two concepts that are really powerful in the book that folks will walk away with an understanding of it. It will make them a more effective educator. Two concepts. Oh, wow. So many concepts. I'm going to go to one of my theories that I've been theorizing here at UW. Madison, the powerful part of this book was that, you know, I wrote it on different lands. I first started writing it on Mikasuki and Tequesta land in Miami, Florida. And then I went up here in Wisconsin. And, and, and I'm like, I'm like, ooh. So there's indigeneity in this, right? And trans it, it travels, right? So there's a there's a there's a theory called Isangbag Sak as an educational framework, which I've been theorizing here. And one is to like embody your indigeneity. That's one concept. Isangbak Sak means one fall in Tagalog. So you're going to get a masterclass in Tagalog now, you know? And one fall actually comes from the anti-martial law movement in the 1970s, where the, the Filipino, we have, and I, I don't want to 
stress people out when I say the KKK. We had our own KKK, but it was a revolutionary movement. My dad jokes about this because his my dad's a factory worker. So he, he'll his colleagues would be like, oh, yo, Willie, my dad's Willie, you have a KKK, but I learned about that. It's like a good KKK. I'm like, my dad's like, yeah, yeah, we do. We do. We do. We don't talk about it in America because we know what's going to happen if we bring it up. But yes, we have the Katipunan, and that's a revolutionary movement that's anti-martial law that used to say Isang Bagsak at their rallies against martial law. That was transcended by Art Nelson Concordia to a rallying cry in the 90s with the Basante movement aligned with the unity clap, now with that cross-racial solidarity bill. Chicano, Filipino farm workers, right? And with that clap, that accelerating clap at every movement building space, I wanted to take that ritual and create that into a cultural practice and a framework. So I took sociology from Ann Swidler, and I said, culture as toolkit, my culture, Isang Baksak, as a tool, let's bring it and stretch it out into a tool that educators can use. Okay, so what is, is what's Isang Baksak? Isang Baksak can be and can invoke multipartiality. When we think about like being a facilitator, a designer of programming, multipartiality means holding multiple perspectives, but then privileging the most oppressed in any given space. You have to map that and meet contextual in any given space. What does that mean for us? We have to examine the power dynamics based on identity markers in any given space. That's very difficult because you go into a space, you're just going to see what you know from phenotype and color, right? Unless you survey your students and they tell you these dynamics and then how they manifest is a different story. That's Multipartiality. That's one aspect of multipartiality within Isang Bagsak because it helps us think about multiple perspectives, right? Another concept within Isang Bagsak as a theory in the book is transnationalism, transnational kapwa. That's another Tagalog term. In this movement in today, when we think about Israel-Palestine and the apartheid, people are not lost for words. I would argue even anti-racist scholars because they don't, they don't know how to go back up to coloniality and how supremacy and capitalism are different functions of it. And I go down, I, I include Dr. Myra Rupa's, Rupa Myra's framework of coloniality and colonialism, and it goes into supremacies, patriarchy, white supremacy, right, exploitation, and then capitalism, exploitation, and it, it goes down. And breaking that down and going up to colonialism will help us get to the root of many things, right? When we go to anti-racism, sometimes it leaves us short. It's really helpful but it doesn't help us engage. It kind of immobilizes us when, it, when we think about mapping, we think about the racial contract, this idea that we exist in a society where there's a contract that's a line, that's the design, right? Where people will either cross the line or not when it comes to race, racialization, and racism. How far will we go to show for our Palestinian brothers and sisters and our Jewish folks too, right? We don't wanna, there's so much going on, right? When we think about war, and part of this theory helps us understand and approach that with more nuance instead of being immobilized. So with, even within that one chapter, like chapter six, or Isang Vaksak, there's so much we think about. And I didn't write it for this because this book happened before today's movements in Sudan, Congo, where those will be going on. But like popular media has made them popular again. This theory is, I feel like, evergreen in the sense that we need a way to stretch ourselves to be in coalition. And I don't think we've thought about that enough in education because when we enter the classroom, let's bring it back down to the classroom and bring it back down to anybody. And like, not just as American Americans, 
when you're in the classroom, that practice is a cross-racial, cross-ethno-racial coalitional practice. And people don't see teaching as that in that lens. And that theory will help teachers think about it in that lens. Wow. Oh, sounds Frarian in a lot of ways. You know, that we're not, you know, we're not using a baking concept that people, students come with a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of resources that we're trying to, instead of pour knowledge in, we're trying to extract the knowledge we could sort of co-create in the classroom, which is a very powerful way of thinking. And the term, I'm going to try to pronounce it correctly, Ingsang Baksak. We're going to do some masterclass. So we're yes. going to say it together. Isang. Isang. Baksak. Baksak. You got it. Perfect. Gotcha. Iksan baksak. E, that, that e is sang baksak. E, e sang baksak. Okay. There you go. Perfect. Gotcha. You know, I, I love other languages because you learn how to use different parts. I feel like it comes from like right here, right? It does. It, it does. It does. So this concept, in short, because I want folks to attach to this. I want folks to attach to this concept in very profound ways. That in order to, to really attach to this sort of way of thinking, the book will help you understand how to interrogate we think about abundance mindset in the classroom um, and scarcity mindset, I think we operate within the scarcity mindset because classrooms, you feel like there's not enough, right? There's not enough we can do. There's not enough resources, not enough emotional intelligence, not enough intelligence in the room. If we embody Sangbak Sak, we start to see the abundance that is out there. We think about, oh, if we see classrooms as coalitions and potentials for cross coalitions. If I don't have it here, I can go across this hall and get it. We get what I need. I can combine resources and get what I need. Oh, I don't have this. Oh, that, you know, by relationship, I need to meet. If I want to like bring Asian American identities in the classroom, oh, snap. Wait, is there Asian Americans within our city? Wait, I didn't know that. I didn't even ask that question. I never even thought about that. Wait, let me look Google this, right? It gets them curious to Google and figure out an asset map. Oh, there's Asian Americans. Oh, how do we incorporate the community of Asian America to come in, even if there's no Asian Americans in my class right now, right? Because Asian Americans are everywhere. There's a community, there's a China, there's a mini China town, Lao, Filipino, you, you name it. But we haven't even asset, we don't even know where the assets are. We haven't even thought about that. So Isang Baksa can even think about, help you think about like, oh, how do I, what is it? This is a starting place to think about cross coalition with Asians. Let's leave it at that. Like, if you want to, if you're like, oh, how do I, how do I like concretize my allyship toward Asians? Isangbaksak is a theory to help you concretize that. Because you're like, where are the steps? Every time I go out and speak, people get overwhelmed because they're like, where do I even start? Isangbaksak will help you start. Like, multipartiality? Let me just, let me just try that one. You know, oh, abundance mindset versus scarcity. Let me just try that one. Oh, transnational couple. Let me just try that one. And that's the purpose of the book. I want you to be able to not get overwhelmed. But I, I want you to be able to choose and assess where you're at and then be like, okay, let me try this and then move on after I'm get, when I get done. Because this is an evergreen resource that will be useful um, for ages. I, I... Gotcha. So I have, I have two, two final questions because the audience, the intended audience of this podcast, the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute podcast, are practitioners, are educators, yep. teachers, counselors, social workers school leaders, district leaders, and those who are adjacent to education. And the, you, you sort of answer this question like, where do we start, right? Because this book, for me, it was overwhelming. And I felt, I didn't feel guilty, but I felt really stretched with the, the questions 
at the beginning are embedded within the chapters because I'm like, yes, I am tremendously painfully ignorant around Asian American history, Asian American leaders, Asian American culture. And mm -hmm. it can feel like, wow, I am just an empty vessel that I need to read more and learn more before I even start. And that's the antithesis, right? You can't be neutral and supporting white supremacy while you're trying to learn to deploy anti-racism and anti-colonialism. And so where is the someone who listens, who's inspired by this, they buy the book, they read it. I want to try something. It's January. What can I actually, because you've been in the classroom, what can I actually do to start experimenting with decolonizing my, my curriculum and my pedagogy? Oh my goodness. Okay. There's a straight up lesson plan that people can just like pick up and go with. I forget what chapter it is. I should know is by heart, but it's the hip hop and poetry and arts chapter. And it's a, it, it is a lesson that I actually crafted at Harvard at school. That was one of my like, like lesson plans that I wanted to create in my arts and education program before I got dissolved. And the idea of art from art from art or art and expressicism, because I learned expressic ideas from poetry. How do we write about art? How do we write about art? And I think Art opens up mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors into different portals that simple text can't. So what this lesson plan does is that what I hope editors can do is literally you take imagery and living portraits of political cartoons, portraits, drawings. It could be media. It could be poems, right? And it could be like one of those stations, gallery walk stations, and you have like maybe four or five of those, and you want to teach different concepts, different, you know, if you want to RL. 7.1, citing evidence, text evidence. You know, you want to go into that? 7.3, if you want to go into central idea. If you want to teach those things, different political cartoons or arts, to look at those and examine those standards, put them across the room, ask those questions. How do you, one, like one, what's happening in the, in the art piece? What are we understanding, right? If you're reading a piece of poetry that you're from an Asian American poet, I put my poetry in there. So I hope kids are reading my poetry. What is Tony saying in this like lunchbox poem? What's the central idea, right? Reread. And then like, what's some text evidence that actually cites and helps supports that central idea, right? Okay, how oh, now compare it and contrast, right? Like, how do we use that poem that's on the wall to compare with Clint Smith's poem, My Jump Shot? Because I speak to Af like pro-Blackness in this book. Pro-Asian-Americanness came from pro-Blackness, right? So how does pro-Asian-ness and pro-Blackness speak to each other from looking at those two poems together? That's a whole lesson plan in and of itself, to be honest with you. Like I gave you like the structure of a whole like gallery walk. But if you want to just look at those two poems, you can and you can spend an entire class looking at like how they intersect, how they're different, how decolonization can like map itself here. And the anti-racism works better in this one. Oh, social location of place. Right. There's so much you can do with just two pieces. And then from there, you bring it back after the knowledge of the kids like looking at the pieces and they can share out, right? They can do a whole jigsaw around like what they learned from it. Or you could, if, it, if you had many groups that just looked at the same piece, we can have a whole group dialogue around those pieces just to see what is, what people are riffing off each other. It's kind of like a hip hop cypher now. At this point, you've gathered the knowledge, you're shouting this out. And then now after you hear it, after you had some time to like regurgitate, like to chew on it, you get to regurgitate and then suddenly someone else is influencing how you're thinking about the process or you're thinking about the content. So I think that lesson, literally, if you read it, you copy and paste it. And it, it's especially like, especially on a rainy day, especially on a rainy day, it will save your butt because I know teachers sometimes are like, oh my goodness, I forgot my alarm clock didn't ring at the right time. I need to get to school. I need to print out. This is the one you can lean on and open up the book 
you can actually have this because the pictures are there. You can print out the pictures and the art pieces and they can go up right away and you can actually mm -hmm. teach that lesson. So that chapter, go to that chapter and you're, you're ready to go. That is awesome that you give a ready to go. Here we go. Get your dip your toe in the pond. See how it goes. And as I'm listening to you, I'm just picturing myself in, in fifth grade because I was a part of an integration program in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I was the little speck of black, you know, amongst the sea of white. And to have my jump shot, my lunchbox as a sort of exploratory activity with my, with my friends who are white friends to do an intellectual activity, but also an emotional activity about examining two very powerful pieces of poetry, I would have been felt so seen in a curriculum where we are not seen, you know, where it's the black community is seen in, in terms of slavery and civil rights. That's it. Right. And Asian Americans, we don't learn about it at all. We don't right, learn about right. it at all. It's just not there. And I had Asian, Asian American classmates who, yeah, it was just, we never learned about their history. It just did not exist. So I'm just like, this would be so validating to a, my fifth grade self. And 100%. so for those who want to start, realize that the students who don't feel seen and feel represented in any sort of positive light in the curriculum, this would be very powerful for them. But then also for those who are white, who, who are, or those who don't own these identities, it's powerful learning experience. Folks to really experience the firsthand sort of artistic, the personal is the political artistic expression of two folks from different identities. So I think that is Absolutely. awesome. So my final question is, because I know where to find you. I'm following you, Tony. I'm trying to find where I can get you. I'm in Kentucky. Like, you're not here yet. You said I can bring you. I'm going to try my darndest to get you out here. But where can folks stay? I like Tony De La Rosa's work. I want to find him. I know where his book is. But you know what? I'm inspired by this, this podcast, and I want to reach out. I want to find him. Where, where, can, where can people find you or follow you? Yeah, people can find me. So a few places. So if you want to just see the ecosystem that is my brain and my soul and brainchild, that is TonyRosaSpeaks.com. If you want to follow me in my, my reflections of current, like very real-time reflections of what's going on in the world, on IG or Instagram at Tony Rosa Speaks or on Twitter at Tony Rosa Speaks. Those are the main places right now. My book's there. You can't, you, you can't miss it. So if you really want to dive in, you want to really embrace your pro-Asian American lens, which I hope you do, like tap in, tap in. You will not be sorry. And one, you will be wanting more. I, I, I truly believe so. Awesome. And we will link it in the bio, right? So where to find a book, where to find, I'm going, I don't really use Instagram, but I'm going on it, right? Cause I've been following you on LinkedIn, right? Where, like, where is he okay. today? Following okay. that book tour. <laughs> so awesome. I really, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know you're on a, on a, like a whirlwind book tour, you're a graduate student, your father, the, the day is full, the plate runneth over <laughs> for spending full. this hour with us. I feel very fortunate and blessed. So thank you for coming on with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute podcast. Remember, the fight against racism starts with each and every one of us. Together, we can create inclusive environments in our schools that celebrate diversity and empower all students. For more information, visit our website at antiracisminstitute.com and subscribe to our channel. Join us next time as we continue to shine a light on the champions of change. Stay inspired, committed, and let's make a difference together.